0: This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples
1: and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on.
0: Good morning, good morning, everybody. It is Sunday morning and it is the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Ab Bishop and I am joined in the studio by two fantastic experts. We have Emmeline Bowman, landscape architect, and fungi and bulb expert, Greg Boldiston. Good morning, lovely people. Good morning. morning. And we also should say that we have two very special guests who uh, are sort of making a little bit of noise but... May not join the show, and that is Trixie and Daphne. And they are your lovely dogs, Greg. yes.
2: I brought them down today. They I was gonna pop down myself, and I left the car door open for three seconds, so both of them just jumped in. <laughs> it was all <laughs> over. And I thought, well, that's that's settled that <laughs> all over. They have yeah. to come in, yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> they're adorable, and they're both working dogs, aren't they?
2: They're both Kelpie crosses, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Trixie's got a bit of border collie, I think, and and I'm not sure about Daff. Uh-huh. I think yeah, bit of a bit, bit of a mixture, but definitely mainly kelpie, Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, full of beans and and uh, always ready for action.
0: Yes. Well, I follow your Instagram account, um Yeah, Longenomus, Longenomus. However Either you want to say however, it, however, it's yes, a made long,
2: up word out of a dead language. Well, so there
0: you go. <laughs> I cannot be wrong. That's good to know. Um, and yes, yeah, saw them uh, yesterday chasing a frisbee, and I suppose they chase a frisbee for forever forever yeah, yeah.
2: especially Daphne she takes chasing uh, objects very seriously okay. and uh, <laughs> gets up very upset with the other dogs when they don't play to her rules that okay. shes said uh, organized for herself what are her rules? Uh, not sure, not a bit. but it needs Random. to be orderly and, and the ball needs to get back to the thrower as soon as possible. Okay. And uh, the other dogs don't care for that. They like to play with or run off with the ball and, yeah. and, uh, muck her game up. So she gets upset with them.
0: Fair enough too. You're working at Forest Glade, aren't you? So that's <coughs> yep. a pretty ha- large
2: garden. Yeah, it's about 15 acres. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah. take the doggies to work? I do. Yeah. Um, yeah there it's a it's a little bit more structured there because uh as part of the garden opening where it's open every day and do, you're allowed to bring your dogs in but they have to be on leads and it's a bit hard to work with dogs on leads so i it, depending on what i'm doing they can uh, stay around me and they mm-hmm. usually they usually come back if if someone's coming or uh, but when it's really busy they often just have a Bit of a break in the car for a little while, yeah, and I just enough. let them out every hour or so for a quick run or something, and and they jump back in the car. But, um, do they my,
0: interact with the visiting dogs?
2: Uh, I try to avoid that, okay. yeah, because yeah. uh, some people get upset,
3: yeah, fair and, enough. And
2: there's a lot of people that don't like dogs, and and so to have a dog run up to you, especially a fairly large dog run up to you, um, if you don't know what dog's body language means, that can be quite. Uh, scary moment <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> even if the dog's waggling its bum and, and what not um, if you don't know that and you're scared of dogs, yeah you don't want a dog running up to you mm-hmm.
0: um, And I guess big working dogs, they're not so much interested in digging up the garden is that right?
2: Yeah, no they, they're pretty good yeah. with the garden and they're quite light footed too mm-hmm. um, again the worst thing's like throwing sticks and things because they'll, they don't care where they're running towards when they're chasing it it's just like get the stick. Yeah. So if you throw, if you throw a stick in a garden bed, they're going to run in the garden bed. Um, so yeah, you just have to watch out where you're throwing things for them.
0: When it, when it's footy season, I'm often thinking that um, footy players should uh, take on board what dogs do with sticks when they're chasing the ball, because dogs are just so focused when yeah. it comes to the stick. It's just like there's nothing else in the world yeah. except the stick. Yeah, mm.
2: yeah. But but it's it's good like if you like dogs get one and garden with it because it's yeah they just love being with you um and i found this especially with working dogs uh if they're with you they're happy Mm -hmm. um so if you could you know the fact that i can take them to work most days um you know they might not get uh, the exercise they need every day but because they've been with you all day and you know there's they're they're really smart dogs, and they need that stimulus. Mm. Um, so even a boring day sitting in the car for them is much better than leaving them at home. Yeah, because uh, yeah, they feel really sad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <I'm> sure <laughs> so they do. Yeah, like we he such going without me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, just just the extra stimulus of having a d- change of scenery and and yeah, it certainly. You know, my old blue heeler, Misty, who I brought in a few times as well over the years, Um, you know, out in the forest, she was amazing. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm looking for fungi and stuff, mm-hmm. I'd sort of follow her through the bush. She'd follow wallaby tracks course, and yeah. and um we'd go deep into the forest. And a couple of times she even, um, I remember one time a battery was going flat on my torch because I was out there at night time, of course, and... um I, I, she's kept looking at me like going, you don't know where you're going, to, do you? <laughs> and I said, well, my battery's flat. We need to get to the car. And then she looked at me for about half a second and trotted off, and I followed her. And we we're back at the car in five minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, uh, I love dogs. And, yeah. and they
0: or, don't eat fungi when you go out in the forest with
2: them? Not that I know about. Yeah. Yeah. They certainly haven't shown any symptoms of eating poisonous ones yep. anyway. Yep. But, <laughs> um, uh, no, not really. They they like, uh, Trixie's quite a particular eater anyway and and Daphne might yeah, the wombat's poo's the worst thing. They, oh, they love they like it, they, oh. they don't oh, mind chewing a on a wombat fiber. poo. Yeah. yeah it has to be a certain texture and consistency though. Daphne's
0: talking to right now. I just heard the sad news oh. that Pringle, your beautiful um, rainbow lorikeet, yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah flew away last year. Yeah. Week. It was mm-hmm. very, very hard. Um Like I'm a big animal lover, so I feel that as an extension of my family. So it's a very, very hard time, and actually I haven't really brought it up that much. So yeah, but that's fine. (laughs) Everyone knows. Um, Yeah, because
0: Pringle usually went everywhere with you.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes with work and and things like I'd be careful in some aspects, but yeah, she was, she was my little buddy. Mm. She went everywhere, and yeah, I miss her a lot. I um I can't I can't express how much sadness it is to lose a pet when they are something that you really cherish. There's like you know some people kind of see pets as a pet, and then there's some people who just really see them as the personalities that they are and mm. part of the family. That's right. Even like when you were saying like to to really be aware of animals' personalities or to know body language, it's a skill that you either Learn or you do grow up with, but a lot of people don't tend to have that Mm. skill, and um, it's a gift when you do because you really enjoy those characters of animals, Mm. and you see it in a different light. And I think that's why I find my job really important because I I see a lot of animals, I see like their personalities come through, Mm. Um, and I think it's a very very beautiful thing. And I wish more people would spend time. Uh, amongst uh, animals a little bit more to... And I'm, I'm sure a lot do, but really just try and unpack them and see them not as a bird or not mm. as a lizard or whatever. Just start to see that little personality come through because yeah. yeah. it is there. They're all different. And
0: and not simply as being something that they're being amused by or um, enjoying. Mm. Or that the, goes
2: with their handbag or... Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah exactly. It, it's more these creatures are existing and have yep. the right to exist Absolutely. and they're all they all have such personalities mm. even insects yep. yeah so they do the more you sort of get to know them and watch them i think you end up forming these sort of might even be short-term relationships mm. with Insects and lizards. I haven't yet sort of formed any type of relationship with frogs, and I think that's just because they're nocturnal and you tend to hear yeah. them more than you see them. Yeah. But certainly with skinks yeah. in the garden, and yeah, mm. yeah, they're,
1: they're all their own personalities. That's right, and um, yeah, it's very special. Yeah, so, th- yeah.
2: Um, my blue healer Misty, when she died, that was that was I was actually supposed to be on air th- that morning, and she passed away a few hours before I was. Uh, Going to get up, and it's like, yeah. I can't go in this morning. No. I'm to ring Stephen, yeah. and I think he was in here all by himself. Um, and yeah, it was just like, I can't speak for maybe the next two weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I'll be uh struggling with this for, for a little while. And and but then you sort of think the privilege of feeling that way about about something mm. is worth the absolutely. The, you know the the heartbreak and when they pass it's like well that's actually a really big privilege to mm. feel like that about something yeah yeah uh, so i, I yeah. had
1: a, a, a death which a lot of people just didn't understand because i had these um pet pythons which is a really one. um but i love i had one Ula, uh as like she was probably about 20 centimeters when i had her when she passed, she was four meters. Whoa. <laughs> but a lot of people think, how the hell do you have a relationship with a snake? But it was, <laughs> the thing is, it was a really horrible. I lost her right before one of a friend's uh, engagement party, and I just couldn't go. I was mm. just bawling my eyes out, and my friend's just like, it's just a snake. It's not just a snake.
3: Mm. No
1: I go, way. it had personality. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand it, but I was like, you know, I would have it where, you know, she would put a little head up, and I'd... Give her a kiss on the forehead, like you see something, and a lot of people think that's weird, and it is weird. But honestly, I loved those things. So, well, I had two snakes, and um, yeah, it was a bit of a tragic accident. But yeah, I was like, not not going to this funeral. I can't. Mm. Mm.
0: And and what happened with the other snake? Like were, were they hap- partners? Or yeah,
1: well, I had two, and unfortunately, they were in this um reptile enclosure, and it overheated, and I lost <gasps> it that way. Oh my gosh.
0: Mm. Mm
1: -hmm. that is sad yeah Yeah. so it was very like yeah so yes all animals are beautiful and unique in their own way i encourage everyone to get out in the garden and just watch them a little bit more rather than and i mean we all anthropomorphize things but just really sort of look at them and and try and see them for who they are well observing
2: observing animals in in your garden has got to be one of the pinnacles of having a garden isn't it is to watch the birds and and like yeah possums and and
3: yeah
2: like even seeing rats and mice run around even though you don't usually want them in there but it's still (laughs) interesting because they've got this whole world and life and they're quite yeah and they're very sociable and intelligent and
1: yeah
2: um and then i think for me it's out out in the forest like uh, there's a few times I've been photographing fungi and like I'll lie down on my chest on the forest floor in the rain at like nine o'clock at night in the middle of winter <laughs> and I've got all my camera gear set up <laughs> and then um, you know there's leeches crawling on my lips and <laughs> oh, no. then a, a little anti well, ante- will just run past oh. the camera and you can't take a photo of it because I've got all the settings yeah. to take really long exposure pictures for the low light levels but to be just sitting there and this Antichinus runs mm. a foot away from your face just across the log behind the mushroom, you're taking your feet off. It's, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's really nice to see stuff like that. And as you say, to spend the time to not just go, oh, there's an animal, I want to go and pat it, mm. but watch it in its environment yeah. and see how it behaves and how it uses the trees and, or ground or where its little burrows and runs are. Yeah. And you, this whole new world opens up of this is a living landscape. Uh, mm. Even in your garden, mm. uh, and animals, you know, are born and live their whole lives in that environment that you've created, and and whether you want them there or not. That's right. Um, and yeah, it's a, it adds a whole new level to like looking at your garden. Yeah, and, and yeah.
0: yeah, more and enjoyment. Even yeah, as the bees, butterflies, just. For them to come down and you've sort of gone to the trouble of creating this garden mm-hmm. and to know that you are supporting the ecology. Yeah. Yeah. It just feels really
1: good. It does. Yeah. Though I know I found when when I was doing maintenance on the garden, this is more so at my parent and my dad's um, he has a lot of little wrens and, and things. And I was just, you know, cutting the salvias and things as you do giving them all a the prune and they were so upset. Mm. And birds hate it. <laughs> yeah. They hate it when you do cleanups. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. really, really, it, really upsets them. Except
2: yeah. uh, the opposite of that is that Forest Glade often uh, working down towards the fern gully mm-hmm. <clears throat> and if you're disturbing the leaf litter at all, oh, yeah. uh, like usually weeding, mm-hmm. you get um, groups of little scrub wrens that come around yeah. <laughs> and they'll at the same time yell at you for being in their territory and making noise and movement and stuff but they're also like yeah surrounding your feet trying to get at the the woodlice and, and whatever else is under there mm-hmm. And then you get the odd uh, yellow breasted robin that'll come and often bash up the scrub wrens and steal their food <laughs> off. <them.
3: laughs> it seems and they'll, great they'll to sit watch. sit on yeah. the, <laughs>
2: the robins will sit on your feet and if you leave your hand still long enough, they'll just come and sit on your yeah. hand and they look at you and they'll they, you know, get quite close to you and yeah. check everything out and then they go, That scrub wren's got a nice juicy worm that I <laughs> think I reckon I could take that one on. <laughs> um and yeah, echidnas as well. I've had oh, a really couple of really cool close encounters with uh, a, a very uh, young echidna, a yeah. little puggle. Mm. And I was I, I was laying down on the lawn filming it, and it walked towards me and snuggled its nose in between my fingers.
1: Oh wow, <laughs> that's so cute. That would um, have felt nice. Yeah, but... yeah.
2: So but... and they're
0: easy to follow because being blind and deaf, <laughs> as long as you are really. Sort of gentle on the soil, and yeah. they can't feel you. Yep. You can follow them for ages. Yeah.
2: Well, if you sit and and like I say, instead of looking at us in, I need to go and interact with that animal. You you're in their environment, so you just sit there and be still and quiet and calm, and all this stuff just starts happening happening around you. Mm.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and again, doing that in the forest is is the best. Like yeah. just sitting out in the forest and let everything get back to its balance before mm. you came crashing through. Yeah. And you just sit there for a little while, and then all of a sudden the birds start coming back in, and um, and they're
1: uh, curious about yeah, you. Yeah, like when they're looking at you, like you're the alien. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, so they probably yeah.
1: know you by now.
2: Oh, uh, it depends. It's yeah, yeah. I think some of the wallabies do,
0: because
2: mm. I think they're pretty pretty bright creatures, and uh, yeah, often you walk through the forest and you don't often see them, especially at night time. But you'll hear them. Like you might startle one. And they give a big warning thud as they jump off. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, but I, I think the wallabies are... at Mount Macedon anyway. I think the wallabies are the um, the caretakers up there. Okay, I think mm-hmm. they're they're the they're the top dogs as far as intelligence, and and it's almost like they talk to each other a little bit <laughs> i like to think but uh oh, don't yeah. you
0: love those um that footage that you see every and again on on socials with like a badger being friends with a fox mm-hmm. or a deer or something and these two very unlikely animals out in the wild and mm-hmm. they're, and they're good friends and they hang out together yeah. and it, you just don't expect that at no.
2: all just... but, but yeah there, there's certainly some good experiences to have if your intent isn't to go up and pat them. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Just yeah. to let them be. Just, just to let them be. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, another time I was out with a friend and I, I showed them the oldest tree that I know on Mount Macedon, which is a, a eucalyptus oblique that's, I'm guessing, around five or 600 years old. Yeah. And it's literally just an archway with a little branch coming off the side. It's still alive. <laughs> and anyway, um, they weren't having a great time of it. So we went out and sat on a log next to this tree. Mm. And after about three minutes, a little uh, agile antichinus stuck its head out of one of the little knots in the tree and ran up up the tree. Mm -hmm. And then we sat there for another five minutes and another one poked its head out. And I think we ended up sitting there for like an hour and a half, nearly two hours, and we saw 14 agile antichinus come out of this one tree and run up up," and... so there's a whole little city of them, unless it was like a clown car and they were running around the back and back oh, yeah, in the fast. <laughs> and again, yeah, exactly.
3: They're very fast. <laughs> yeah, but,
2: but I'm pretty sure there was 14 individuals run out of this one hollow in this massive old tree, and it was one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed. It was uh, a
1: very special too.
2: moment. Yeah, like
1: the way they move, it's and just, they're tiny too. They're, they're so tiny. They're just
2: these tiny little mouse, oh, well, slightly larger than a mouse-sized Cute creatures. Little eyes, little pointy nose. Yeah, and yeah. they're just up. up the tree trunk uh, out on these little branches and just scurrying around you know on these tiny little branches yeah yeah um yeah it's a very very special moment yeah
0: beautiful beautiful all right i will read some community (coughs) announcements there's really not many so we'll get through them and then we can um chat just chat some more all right so this is for next year the open gardens victoria their first two gardens of the year Uh, There's the 13th and 14th of January and there are two Anglesey Gardens that are open, Sunny Mead and Jamboree. And 4th of February there's Buttonshaw Farm in Montrose and the Aussie Veggie Patch in Moorlbark. So if you um, feel like visiting either the Anglesey Gardens or the sort of um, Yarra Valley Gardens, just hop onto the Open Gardens Victoria website and you can get more information there creative harvest is holding an open edible food gardens weekend which is in west gippsland on the 27th and 28th of january Uh, you can celebrate sustainable food gardening meet creative makers sample sensational local produce and visit 12 flourishing gardens which i imagine would be a real highlight Uh, there's plenty of workshops there's herbs for cooking medicine and pleasure There's Garden to Plate Cooking Workshop for Budding Young Chefs. There's Rise and Shine Sourdough Workshop. There's Using Florals as Dye. Wild Bounty, The World of Edible Weeds. And then there's Heirloom Tomatoes, No Grow and Sew. And that is being taken by our very own Penny Woodward. And that's creativeharvest.org.au. So they're uh, January and February things to do. This is a book um, which we thought would be um, maybe of interest to listeners. It's Melbourne University Press and they put out The Fires Next Time, Understanding Australia's Black Summer, edited by Peter Kristoff. Before becoming an academic, Peter worked as the Assistant Commissioner for the Environment in Victoria, establishing the Victorian State of the Environment Reporting Program and contributing to the national program. He also served as Vice President of the Australian Conservation Foundation for eight years and on the board of Greenpeace. The fires next time offers a unique and comprehensive account of the many factors and failures that led to the fires. Its authors look at how climate change and political neglect combined to make them so severe. It assesses their ecological consequences, but also their economic, social, health, and political impacts and their long-term costs. The book also looks to how we should better respond to such risks and threats. It proposes new measures for managing Australia's growing fire risks including new land management regimes and a national disaster insurance scheme that will give greater security to those living in climate disaster-prone areas, including towns likely to be affected by fires in the future. And this book is available from Melbourne University Press. It's $35. And to order, uh, you need to email Dominica Grinert at unimelb.com. Dot edu.au. So I'll just spell it out D O M I N I K A dot G R E I N E R T at unimelb.edu.au and we'll put that um, email address up on our socials as well so you'll be able to have a look. So that's a book, The Fires Next Time. So this is the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop and I'm in the studio with Greg Boulderston and <coughs> Emmeline Bowman. So Emmeline, I know that you um, design your gardens around sort of using zoological and habitat design and you do a lot of water gardens as well. Mm-hmm. Any particular projects you've been
1: working on at the moment? got a big one at the moment mm-hmm. up in Drummond actually. It's... Um <clears throat> it's a it used to be a dam and do a lot of them
3: mm-hmm.
1: and actually it's very it's a very interesting project because this dam must have been spring fed Oh, i know it's been spring fed because we've cleaned it and then reshaped it and you know we're getting the the, the water coming through as a little spring but it was the most ecologically depressed dam i've ever seen it didn't have hardly any life forms in it it had a few yabbies it had a, it has a few frogs, but in terms of like insect life and, and other species, I'd never seen anything like it. And it was really funny because I sort of mentioned that I was like, just while well, we were like, you know, getting it sort of slowly, you slowly drain it. So you allow like other species to sort of move on to the other dam that's down there. And we were picking up like little froglets and things, but I was very like, yeah, this is probably one of the most the why, least. Why do you think that
2: was? Is it?
1: I think, <clears throat> I think it's because if it was, it's on a hill, so I don't think. I think the hill must have spilled water, mm. and they've gone. I'm going to put a dam here, so it was never an existing water ecology,
3: mm.
1: and for that reason, and because there is no other um, additional water sources connected to a water environment nothing has been able to sort of populate it.
2: It's like an island that hasn't been inhabited yet.
1: Exactly. Yeah, Water yeah. Island. It was yeah. very interesting, which is like, it's great because it's sort of, you know, we all spend, as designers, I think it's really important that you you are observing your environment. You, you observe every project as a different experiment in a way. Um, and to learn from it, whether it's success or failure as well, mm. but to really understand, like, how each of those environments are and what you can do to it to improve it. So in this sense, I'm like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's like I, I we're going to put plants back, and I always say, like, it's kind of like a bit of a yogurt culture. You know, when you do bring plants in from other nurseries, mm. you're going to be bringing in bacteria, you're going to be bringing in insects. So it's going to be very interesting to see what's going to happen with this um, dam mm. the other interesting thing which sort of backed up my theory is the owner she actually got a um a microscope um just to play with and she decided to put the pot the the damn water in there under mm. a microscope and she said there was hardly anything in it and mm. that when we we're talking she, that her husband actually brought it up she's like yeah she said there wasn't anything in there and i was like yeah because there isn't like even on a microscopic level yeah. so interesting anyway so we're working on that at the moment. It's right next to Goldfields, like uh, Paul guys garden. So it's mm-hmm. like from stone, the manicure stone, stone to field. the wild. Stonefields, Stonefields thank you, yeah. Goldfields. Oh my, I'm thinking of the Goldfields <laughs> because of the Bendigo. Oh, my God. Um, uh, yeah, so we're right next door to there. Um, and, yeah, it's been going really, really well. Uh, was it
0: a stock dam?
1: It would have been. Yeah, so at some point. Amy and Matt, they're the owners. They've bought this property. Um, they're going to be having a little vineyard on top of there. they Amy's fantastic. She has a goat that she milks all the time and she produces her own cheeses and milks. Um, she's going to get a cow soon that she's going to be milking too. She's really such a wonderful woman. Um, she has all these productive gardens that she's being completely sustainable. And, yeah, she wanted to do up the dam to be like a bit of an ecological hot spot and obviously something visual as well so you know we've we've put all the rocks in and we've got these little stone walls that we've done with brock this um wonderful guy from woodend he does rock walling but um you know it's a bit of a combination of um having a a a wild place for wildlife for the observation space and something beautiful for people so a Mm -hmm. bit of a tie between both Mm -hmm. um but um yeah, so we're at the stage, we're putting a little jetty in at the moment. All the rock walling has been done. Um, we've put all the soil back in to be able to, so I cap all clay dams with the soil so I can plant into it. Um, and then literally after this will be done, which will be right before Christmas, I'll be praying to the rain gods for some rain to fill, to it, fill up it up a bit. Yeah.
0: So so technically, just sort of um, backtracking a bit, so, yep. you drain the dam
1: we drain the dam and the dam yep.
0: and um
1: and obviously that takes a few days it no it took about 2 weeks 2 weeks it's okay. a slow yeah. Yeah. It, most people should like do it quite slowly mm-hmm. because you want to be able to make sure that if there are life forms in there that they they can sort of go at the bottom of this area is a creek mm-hmm. um it can roll down the hill and go there um we also obviously went there. It, it does. It is probably the hardest thing to deal with because you do feel really bad for some species in there. So that's why we went in with buckets and we're like trying to save some of the frogs. We put them in the other dams and things like that. The birds do come in and they have a bit of a, a feeding frenzy. Um, but it's really important to have it as a slow progression. No fish? No fish. I'm telling you, nothing. Mm. Not And you know the best thing, no gambusia, none of those horrible mosquito fish. Mm-hmm. Not even a single carp. Wonderful, though. Like, this mm-hmm. is a, a fantastic... This is where I'm like, this is a wonderful project for um, for, for me to, like, look at and really observe something mm. that's literally a blank slate with nothing.
0: Mm.
1: It's, and how yeah. deep
0: is it? Or how deep could it be?
1: It is. It's 2.5 metres deep now. Mm-hmm. Before that, it was only about a metre. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those can contribute to you know, what life forms are in there in mm. a way. and But it was a very, it was still a very clean, healthy system. I mean, it's getting spring water, so there's not much nutrients. It was interesting, though, there was a little um, depression and another little uh, water body that was probably about 15 metres before that. And I did some water tests because i just check check everything. And the nitrate and everything was off the ricked Like, the scale was just like, I couldn't even get the reading. I was like, what's going on here? This is why it's really important to do tests. Mm. And I was like, Mm, this is really bad and then all of a sudden they'd figured out that they had a septic system mm. oh. and it was leaching into there so it's very important to do tests but luckily it doesn't have any connection to this system yeah um what else
0: do you test for with the water
1: i test for ammonia nitrate mm-hmm. nitrite phosphate yeah and then the phs and a hardness level a hardness mm-hmm. your carbonate hardness levels that just means like um you got more minerals and things in the water which will contribute to a hard water. Um, and soft water is more like your rainwater, so it'll mm-hmm. be very soft water. So in certain countries like Borneo or places like that, sometimes you get really soft water, and so you have to sort of make sure if you have aquariums that you are buying this, uh, f- like, not filtered, um, distilled water mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. be quite soft. But um, the water in the dam was quite soft which was interesting but again spring i think it was spring but sometimes springs can be full of minerals and and things so you know that's why it's very important to test just to see and to understand but everything sort of balances out when it goes into these systems unless there's something that contributes to changing the chemistry of that water whether it's geological it could be rock could be the sediment it could be any of those factors that can change things that's why every environment's different suited to all different species um and and that
0: that really is relevant to water as well isn't it absolutely doesn't doesn't matter if it's a a, a garden a
1: soil or that's right yeah i mean it's exactly the same as in a garden that's why we've really got to see water like that as well it's Mm. it it, gardens are exactly the same Mm. you know you've got a certain soil type with a certain ph or
2: and all those things tell you too what you can do well rather than trying to shoehorn something that doesn't work into something that's never going to work and it'll always look bad. You're better off having something that's not quite what you wanted or what you were hoping for that looks good and and is healthy. And, um, yeah, rather than trying to have, yeah, something that doesn't belong in that landscape. That's right. uh, Where you're constantly treating it and trying to adapt it uh, regularly um food's a little different i guess mm. when you're trying to grow food but yeah. um yeah an aesthetic garden you're better off working with, with what's w- with what you've got yeah, so yeah. it thrives and survives and does really
1: well most of the systems though, always end up being pretty similar i mean mm. water systems are healthy environment you know you have a stable ph um you know if you're starting dealing with like acidic water you're not going to have frogs and things like that it's just horrible for them um but yeah it is a lot more stable in your water systems, mm. usually.
0: Mm. Yeah. So uh, you've drained it and then you've obviously brought rocks in?
1: Yeah. So what, I'll do the sequence. Yeah. So we drain it slowly, um, make sure we do an inspection um, while it's happening, take some of the critters out and relocate them. Um, and then it's reforming the dam, so making it a little bit more natural shapes because usually they're just like a big circle so it's still kind of a circle but we make it a lot more sort of organic and free-flowing um so that that's all the sculpting we call it um fixing all the overflows and then yes then you get the rocks come in and you use the rocks as a bit of a feature but also just so we can retain some of the um, soil that we're going to put in the dam so there'll be underwater rocks and top rocks and obviously feature rock, so we've got stepping stones and little walls and stuff to form. So where the edges are of the land to the, to the actual dam, we've got a retaining wall of rocks. So it's kind of like this nice little feature, cut little path. Um, and then the next stage is, oh, and of course, if there's any infrastructure like jetties and things while it's drained, you obviously have to be able to put your foundations in. So we've got to put the little jetty foundations in. Um, Yeah, then once all that's done, we spread topsoil into those little garden beds behind the rocks that we've popped in. um, And then all the finessing of the landscape around, smoothing it out. Um, And then I'm literally waiting for water to fill it up again Mm. because I need the water to plant. And it's the hard time, actually, because I need to plant a lot of the water plants in the summer because they go dormant in winter. Mm -hmm. So I can plant rushes and sedges and things like that all through, but all those really wonderful um, herbaceous sort of aquatic things like milfoil, nardoo, all like lobelia, things like that, all has to be done in the summer, in the Mm. warmth. We need that warmth in the water to let them excel and get that roots through. So for the next summer, they just pop. Um, So yeah, uh, hopefully it rains mm.
0: and any logs oh yeah oh yeah, sorry there's logs, logs. Yeah, yes beautiful. there's logs um the habitat? yes
1: yeah. no we have the logs as a there was a as gentleman said it once and i thought that's very fitting it's bird furniture you oh, know yes, <laughs> i like that um <laughs> and um so i've definitely taken that on board uh so bird furniture as well as a bit of character you want uh, logs and rocks, too, because you get different life forms of algaes and things that grow on these materials, and they support, you know, different species of insects and tadpoles. So you could imagine that, you know, a different type of algae is going to grow on a rock with that, you know, that uh, material. Mm. So that provides a big food source, especially to tadpoles. I've seen tadpoles just sitting on logs, just like scraping it, you know, they eat that. So mm. it's it's very important to have this combination. It's really important to have um, the the rocks and logs as well, because things like a lot of your um, damselflies and dragonfly larvae nymphs, like the nymphs, they will need these to be able to crawl up from out of the water and then obviously turn into their next stage. So mm. Uh, everything is all set up to support that environment because you can't just have a hole in the ground like a dam. No. Just normally, it, it you can see then that would void a lot of, you know, insects, especially dragonflies, because they yep. do need that support to be able to crawl out. Mm-hmm. So yeah.
0: Well, kudos to the owners for yes. for doing that, and they will have a benefit long term mm-hmm. in terms of quitters uh, that will be dealing with their pests and.
1: Yep, it you have no idea how many insects and animals are drawn around water, it's huge. Mm. And uh, another project we had worked on with wonderful um, Rebecca. She's one of my favourites. She has a farm that she does rehabilitation farming all on, and she's wonderful. And she did the dam up especially for that, bringing in beneficial insects but also improving the water quality so when the troughs for her stock have water, it's clean. Mm. And it did. It's, like, crystal clear. Um, She's got pygmy perch, which we introduced, and they're breeding. But the insects are out of control the species of damselflies and dragonflies you see there is just like you've never seen. And they weren't there before. And we got, that was the project where we got growling grass frogs back as well, which was one of the, like, my thing is getting the critters. I don't, I'm definitely animals before humans sometimes. I know people don't like, but it's true. Um, i very, very, very happy about that. So those are your wins, you know, yeah. and um, it's you're very right. The the people who want those projects, I really put my hat off yeah, to them. Yeah. wonderful people who yeah are very selfless in that respect. Like you know, it is sinking a bit of money into these projects, and it's it's not that you're going to be getting money back from that. But I mean, in in terms you you're you're improving the system, you're improving what you're producing. It, it's it's a selfless sort of yeah. giving, and 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 of course we should be. It's 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 Earth. It's our home. You should be bloody looking after it. Yep. Anyway.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Well, I want to come back to um, talking about that sort of um, environment but in a sort of more suburban yep. context. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was Emmeline Bowman talking <laughs> about a um, beautiful dam restoration project. This is the 3CR Gardening Show and if you would like to talk to us, if you've got a question about anything, you can give us a buzz on 9419 or you can text through a question on 0488 809 855. Uh, You can also email us during the week or any time, and we will uh, get to it to either read out on air or answer you directly. And that email is 3cr.gardening at gmail.com. Greg Boldiston, let's talk about some of your plants that you've brought in.
2: (coughs) Well, I've, Actually, I got home fairly late last night, and I thought I'd better go out and check what I've got around the garden, mm-hmm. and I found a surprising amount of hydrangeas, mm-hmm. so I picked a few select ones of those that I still remember the name of. Okay. <laughs> surprising because? <laughs> um, early? Oh, uh, yeah. So, when, when I was a kid, uh, so hydrangeas and bulbs were probably my two major intros into horticulture. Mm-hmm. Um, bulbs were probably first, but hydrangeas were always there because Mount Macedon's just covered in them. They're in pretty much every garden. And... So you
0: grew up on Mount Yeah, yeah. So,
2: yeah. so yeah. the, the old garden I grew up in was planted in the 1870s, early 1870s. And unfortunately about a year ago, the current owners, uh, bulldozed and flattened the whole garden,
3: mm.
2: um, which is a bit of a shame. Actually, it was a lot of a shame, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so so the, these beautiful old gardens uh, had these lovely hydrangeas, and I think for me the the entry into hydrangeas was about when I was about f- thirteen or fourteen. I bought Dad for Christmas one year about four or five different species hydrangeas from Stephen. Okay, and Dad probably didn't really have much interest in species hydrangeas. <laughs> um, so was
0: he into gardening?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he he liked them, but they like. They took me, like, <laughs> um, so. So it was
0: Homer's bowling ball. Yeah,
2: pretty much. And but by the time I was seventeen, I'd collected as many hydrangeas, species hydrangeas particularly, from any nursery I could find. Um, I bought Stephen out of all his fairly quickly, <laughs> and then had to venture up to the Danny Nongs. Um, and yeah, at seventeen, I had the a registered collection with what was then. Um, the what was it then? Um, plant Trust. No, it's Plant else. Trust now, yeah. but it was the uh, Ornamental Plant Collectors Association. Okay. So I had the uh, the species hydrangea and schizophragma collection at the at the age of seventeen.
0: And <laughs> how many were in that collection?
2: Um, it was about forty, I think. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and yeah. they're all species or species mm-hmm. cultivar hydrangeas. So they were they were the asperas and quercifolias and paniculatas and um, yeah, the the little um japonicas and serratas and yeah, all the little species ones rather than the big mop top yep. mm-hmm. uh, hydrangeas because someone already had that collection uh, up in the dainty I think the no, I can't think of their names now. They were a lovely couple that I, I bought a, quite a few hydrangeas off them myself, but they had a little nursery up in Alinda somewhere, I think. Um, and anyway, so when I finally moved out of home, I couldn't take. My collection with me so it sort of that was the end of my Mm. registered collection with plants trust unfortunately um but yeah heidi's were one of those things that i really got into yep as as a as a teen and what what drew
0: you to them Mm.
2: don't know though they were just it's just because what was at hand in this beautiful old garden i grew up in yeah the the uh the three main things were the beautiful old trees um, the, these weird bulbs that are just pop up out of nowhere, and it's like, where did they come from? And the the hideys, this beautiful, these beautiful hydies that you know, and some of these shrubs were planted in the eighteen seventies, like these hydrangeas. And and you look down at the base of their trunks because you usually don't think of hydrangeas as having trunks like a tree does. That's right. Um, but when you see the, uh, you know, the base of a hydrangea that was planted you know over a hundred years ago you can tell it's got all these you know and occasionally you'd lose like one a die or or a section of it a die and you'd pull it up and there's this they have these amazing um bark structures uh, on the on the older stems and it's all this gnarled wood as the as as the cambium layer slowly twists around trying to get juice up into the top and then eventually it dies out and and a new leader from somewhere else will start um but, yeah, they, they don't know what it is. I don't yeah. know what it was. Yeah, I, I think it's just because what was at hand. If, if uh, something else was at hand, I'd probably go for that. And but maybe
0: because there were so many different uh, species that held your interest for longer than yeah. just being a couple mm-hmm. of mop tops.
2: Yeah, yep. Um,
0: and I guess to, to realise, I think in horticulture sometimes when you realise that these very, very different plants are in the same genus it It is quite surprising, yes,
2: yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, the links and and why why we've placed them in the same genus, because obviously back then anyway, there wasn't really DNA yeah. sort of sequencing going on, so it was all based on what the plant looked like and mm-hmm. and what similarities it had to what were presumed to be its relatives yeah. and how they were related and and all that sort of thing but it, it, the few Heidis that I've bought in range. You Know they're all in the northern hemisphere, I think, unless some get down in. I'm pretty sure all the Heides are in the northern hemisphere. Um, but most of the hybrids have been bred from Japanese uh mm-hmm. species. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Maritimer and uh, uh and macrophile. one of the others. I, th- I think Macrophile is a hybrid name, I could be wrong though. Uh, I think all the Macrophyla are hybridized of, okay. of Maritimer and yep and Japonica or Intermedia or something like that. I can't remember. But most most of the ones you see is what you think of as hybrid, as hydrangeas, uh, uh, Asian species. Yep. Um, and then you've got all these weird ones in Central America and, you know, the quercifolias and mm-hmm. Paniculatas are American species. Um, and then you've got them, I think, that go right down into Mexico. I think there's one species that's up in the cloud forests of Mexico, uh uh, actually, I think Stephen's, I think Hydrangea c. manii, which mm-hmm. is a climbing hydrangea, I yep. think comes from Central America, uh, high altitude, sort of semi uh, subtropical areas. Does um, Australia
1: have any hydrangeas? No, as no. I say,
2: I think that most of them are Northern <coughs> Hemisphere, yeah. uh, America, and, and Asian species. Mm. Um,
0: how many species You're
2: are there? Oh, who knows? Oh, hundreds? <laughs> yeah. I, I look at some books now and it's like, I've never heard of that one. Yeah. And I said, know, you know, I had all the books in the day and...
0: Do you have a yearning? Uh,
2: <laughs> no, no. I've, I've, I've lost on. that collector's thing, I think. I, I, I like going out and spotting things, but um, yeah, I think the, the next evolution for me from bulbs and hydrangeas was going out into the forest and going, what's that mushroom? Finding out what it is. Because now you've got an extra degree of you have to be in the right place at the right mm. time, or else you don't see it. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Where if you've got a bulb in a pot, you just you go out and look at it every day until yep. it flowers. But yep. but to see a rare fungi out out in forest, you've got to be in the right place at the right time, and sometimes that window is only six hours or something. When when that mushroom's so to to capture a photo, for instance, of something a fairly rare mushroom that doesn't last very long mm. is. Um, is is yeah. It's more, captured more your of a, attention. That's captured my attention now. Yeah, it's got a the, and the next level of uh, difficulty uh, doing
4: it. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, let's come back to that. We are going to go to uh, Peter. Good morning, Peter. Good
4: morning, everyone.
0: Good morning. How are
4: you? Good. I'm- I've got an area where I'm looking at using a no-mow like a Zorzea or a Dichondra lawn instead of a normal lawn. I don't want to do a synthetic lawn. I've got um, like an area that's not going to have high traffic that's in front of a pond. Which one of those would you recommend or is there another one that you would recommend that I use as a ground cover instead of lawn?
1: Is it shaded or is it quite exposed? It's
4: it's got... Pretty much got probably 80% of the day would have full sun. Ah.
1: And what do you want
0: to do? Like, is there much foot traffic?
4: No, no No. foot traffic. There's a path running past that area. So there'll be a little bit of foot traffic, but I'll put a couple of steppers into where that's going to be. But it was more um, in terms of what's sort of more robust or whether it's going to handle full sun. I'm not sure if that zoysia does do that or is it for a shaded area?
1: Zoysia is definitely, there's a, so i see a nara lawn now that they do um which you can get it it's it needs a little bit of um care for a little bit of time like you you lay it and then you um you have to kind of put a bit of seed on it after about six months it's it's obviously not as vigorous as all those exotic grass species that um are available um it is a tough one uh you couldn't put dichondra there because it's just too exposed it'll die off and yellow off but you could definitely have a bit of a blend so i would put a bit of the only thing is with dichondra if you've got um a wet area around the pond it can run right through the pond so i know it's like the the name of it kidney weed so um you know we have put it around like people's gardens ourselves we tend to use it under like their trampolines and there might be a pond in the area and there's a really lovely combination where the the dichondra sort of bleeds into the lawn itself but it can go rampant through the pond so be be careful that way in case you've Uh, got plant species
2: diversity is really good too isn't it so instead of using one species um there's a, a garden on mount macedon and there's a little native pratia that I think it's pradier that yeah. grows Pratia's all through beautiful. the lawn. So every now and again, you get these little yeah. little star flowers popping up through the greenery, and there's a native oxalis that looks that runs yeah. through grass. Yeah, the pradier is well.
0: a good one actually. Because it looks quite delicate. It doesn't yeah. look like it handles
2: yeah, for sale? yeah yeah i saw the little pratt, yeah
0: the little one with the little white star that's clear. right that might be another option does that take full sun it would yeah it yes does, it yeah. does and but then there's also the uh creeping boobiala the myoporum parvifolium which is a yeah. different look but it still it, it acts it, as a good ground cover
1: yeah that is good but you sort of put it towards the edges though because if you kind of step in you can break the center and it kind of dies yeah, off yeah that's off the it doesn't really sucker and yeah. um Where whereabouts do you live
4: in Mount
1: Martha. Mount Martha. Um, yeah, I was going to say if you're around the Bundura area, they've got a whole lot of little native grasses that you can put in through there. Um,
0: Do you want it really low, Peter?
4: Yeah, sort of like a lawn, but not a lawn. If that makes sense, I don't want to be able. To, I don't want to have to mow the edges or with a stiff because of the area it's in. I want it, and I still want it to be a natural sort of plant, Unless Not synthetic grass or anything like that.
1: About like. Ken- Canedia Cori- and oh, things yeah. like mm. that. Oh, yeah, Canedia prostrata, the yeah. running postman. I, and that's a so local flat. around near you. So, you know, maybe it is about having a bit of a diversity. You know, it's Pratia, it's Dichondra, it's Canedia. Prostrate Coria. Prostate Coria. Um, yep. and, and-, and a lot
2: of those things do better if they are in amongst other things yeah. too. I know the Pratia, if you if you pop that down by itself yeah, and it didn't walk on it very much even, it probably wouldn't wear very well. Mm. But if you pop it in between gra- like other plants so yeah. it can sort of – and then you're not relying on one thing surviving the whole area or yeah. the whole time, you, you've got this constant thing of, uh, you know, different things flowering at different times or, mm. or things – doing better in one spot and not another so you can you don't have to rely on that one species
1: all the time another one too is solaria solaria it's it's like it looks like a little succulent it looks like a little grass and it tends to fringe the ponds and can spread out it does take a little bit of time for it to um really get foot and spread but you know, I've gone to some places and they've just gone crazy. But I think the best option, like in the really exposed part, is like the zoysia, nara, um, and then having that diversity sort of closer to the edges of the garden and the pond. And that way then you don't need to do the cutting, but you still need to cut that zoysia lawn. Like you'll need a little lawnmower for that. What
4: about the zoysia Tenifolia? the no-mow, the, no-mo, the lumpy one? Yeah. Is that?
1: They're wonderful. They're cute. Yeah, they're very cool. Um, and you just, just need to keep the water up to it a little bit because it can dry out. But even then, yeah. in winter, it'll just pop right back and look nice and green. And it's got a very cool texture. Like, it looks really nice on the garden. Um, would,
4: that with, would that go with Pratia or not?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. It pradia will just sort of weave itself through. If You know, it, it's just like a... Mm. Like what Greg said, it's like you, you, you kind of want to have a diversity so then it can sort of be buffered and shaded by other plant species and they sort of work in combination.
2: They sort of sucker along and then pop yeah. up every now and again. Yeah. And they're, they're, the, they're the flowers that you see, yeah. the little branches that have sort of uh, rambled up over the grasses exactly. or whatever they're growing. And with. it's
1: actually quite beautiful. Like I love those little weedy lawns when yeah. all the little daisies pop through like, oh, them. It's pretty. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. All yeah,
4: the- I like the idea of a flowering kind that can sort of complement just sort of a lawny grassy mm. look as well. Yep.
1: Yeah, so maybe no, that's
4: great. Thank you.
0: Pleasure. Good on you, Peter. Thanks so much. I'll, Bye.
4: I've Bye written for now. all of those down. I'm going to do some
0: homework. Good, Good work. On you. Bye for now. <laughs> Bye. Bye you don't actually have to write
1: them down you You just listen to the podcast that's right yes that's a good plug-in everybody listen to the podcast exactly (laughs) uh
0: this is the 3cr garden show i'm ab bishop and i'm with greg bolderston and Emmeline bowman greg let's get back to your hard all
2: right so um i guess i'll start off with the with the asian species that i've brought in the the more hybridized ones um uh this one uh, i'll try and take some photos of these at some point to get mm-hmm. up on the page yep. uh this one's hydrangea aisha mm-hmm. and it's a natural forming apparently a natural forming sport uh that uh so it was a hydrangea maritimer that threw a seed that mm-hmm. had these popcorn like flowers on it um it's probably a hydrangea most people are familiar with but W- wouldn't know the name yep. because it's just one of those popcorn oh they've got there's another common name for them and I can never remember it it's like hen and chicken no no that's the lace caps anyway I, I always knew it as a popcorn hydrangea. Um, and yeah it's just a natural sport that someone's gone oh that's different mm-hmm. and occasionally you'll see a issue with half the flowers normal maritimer. so it'll actually be a, quite a big yeah, hydrangea head. Yeah. Half of it's popcorn shaped, and the other half's got flat petals on it, and which is a bit strange. Yeah. So this one, I actually think this plant is a cutting off one of the plants I grew up that was in the family home when I grew up. Mm-hmm. So um, that's ma- ma- one I've managed to keep a hold of. Um, you don't really see it for sale in the nursery, so I'm not sure where you would get hydrangea. Asia. It's not everyone's taste.
0: Uh, is it always that colour?
2: No, so so, like most of the hybrid hydrangeas, it'll change colour depending on the pH of yep. the soil. So I've obviously got acidic soil, so mm-hmm. this is a, a, um, a lighter bluish colour. Uh, sometimes you'll see them really dark blue, um, but you also get in slightly alkaline soils, light pinks and, okay. and, so and quite deep pinks you. as well, depending on the alkalinity of the soil. Um, so th- yeah, this starting here, that that's probably one of the earliest hydrangeas I, I learned the name of because it was so different and easy to find a name. And that's always a good in, mm. if you wanting to get into something is you go for the ones that you, that are easy to tell apart, that have got some feature on them. That's quite distinct and, yep. and sets it apart from uh, other plants or insects or birds or whatever. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's not the prettiest of hydrangeas, but it, there's something about it that is quite unusual, and it has its moments where it can look really stunning. Uh, and when when it goes autumn color too, they can either be really ugly, mm-hmm. uh, like they've got some weird disease, or quite remarkably beautiful in in not a, 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 a the usual way, but yeah, just have the the color play that they can have on them or. Um, you can get some really interesting greens and, and reds and they're all sort of speckled on these popcorn-y little flowers.
0: How big does it get?
2: They actually get quite big. So I've there's a, a plant I remember in the garden uh, that would have been um, maybe two and a half metres tall. Mm. Uh, maybe even three metres tall sometimes. Yep. You can get water shoots on them that are a couple of centimetres thick mm-hmm. and can shoot from the base up up to yeah, at least two metres in a season. Um, but generally, probably the same height as most hybrid hydrangeas, sort of chest high, yep. uh, if they're doing really well. May- if they're getting a bit too much sun, maybe a little bit shorter. Mm-hmm. And if they are in got lots of water and they're in a high, shade can- uh, a high canopy shade, um they might get up to yeah six eight ten feet yep (laughs) so uh hydrangea maritime is um a really big one so there's there's a cult the most common one grown in australia that's still a maritime is sir joseph banks which again you don't see around anymore um it's probably got some of the biggest flower heads you'll ever see on a hydrangea the the actual corums can be you know uh 40 or 50 centimeters across sometimes but the florets are really tiny very light blue almost white colored flowers or light pink if they're in an uh, alkaline soil but that because these two are related that's uh, they're both maritimer uh hydrangeas this this one it can get huge mm. i've seen them three and a half meters tall these big massive wow. big water shoots on that are centimeters thick and uh they grow on cliff faces on the on Japan. Oh,
3: so they'll beautiful. grow out of cliff
2: faces on the oh. on the coastline um, And the best one I've ever seen was uh, the house next door to us which dad also owned after Ash Wednesday and there was a big cutout for the, their old carport and this Maritime was growing on the edge of the cutout, and it was massive. There was a group of about three or four of them there, and they had these huge heads and massive water shoots and huge leaves. Um, very impressive, Heidi. Um, so the other ones I bought in are two lace caps. Um, this one's probably one of the first hydrangeas I ever bought from a nursery when I was about eight or nine, um, and I think I got it from Dad, but... Uh, uh and it's a hydrangea label, i think it's called and it's uh it's a it's a, a lace cap but it's not a neat lace cap so mm-hmm. the florets don't just go around the edge yep. of the flower they're sort of speckled through the center it's a beautiful white rounded petals um probably a smaller shrub uh sort of waist to chest height um but pretty white semi-lace cap sort of flowers and the other colorful uh, lace oh, cap that i bought car. in mm. is nightingale um this should be a deep dark blue mm-hmm. and you can see it's a bit mauve because mm. i've got it planted next to my concrete water tank uh-huh. and the alkaline lime re- le- leaching out of the concrete it has made the soil a little bit Incredible. more alkaline yep, yep.
3: Yeah, and
2: so it's beautiful. this beautiful mauve mm. but if you put it in a really heavily alkaline soil this will go deep hot pink
1: right
2: um but that but colour
1: is particularly beautiful. It is nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And,
2: and it's it was bred – so a lot of the hybrid hydrangeas, their names, you sort of think, oh, that must be the colour that they are. But, of course, if you put them in the different soils, they'll change colour. Yep. Um, but it often means they were bred for uh, – like there's certain hybrid hydrangeas that were bred for more alkaline soil to show that beautiful rich reddish pink. Yep. Um, and there's others like Nightingale, which would have been bred for a, a more acidic soil mm-hmm. because it was bred to be a blue one. Okay, but it, it'll still go the mauve or pink if you put it in the alkaline soil. Yeah.
1: Do you know why hydrangeas are so receptive? And like, why they col- color up? Like, what would be the advantage in? The I, do, I think it was
2: just. A, a, I think it's more of a byproduct okay. of something else going on in the, their environment because yeah. it seems to be only the. Um, uh, a certain strain of them, like none of the American species, change colour at all, or the, none of the Quercopholias change colour.
3: Okay.
2: Um, and. Paniculata. No, the paniculatas yeah, don't. Okay. And, but then you've got other species in Asia, like the hydrangea asperas which don't change colour, as far as I'm aware, either.
3: Okay.
2: Um, so yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'd say it's more of a side effect from some chemistry rather than a benefit. Okay. Uh, you know an ecological yeah. benefit from doing that, um, yeah. and most of them probably. Oh, right, hang sorry. on, the dogs. The dogs
0: have. uh a <laughs> the the They're hey. going to be part of the show today. It's Trixie. not as bad as it sounds, Trixie everybody. <laughs> they're <laughs> just playing. Yeah. Actually playing. They're not. <laughs> nobody's getting attacked. No here. one's they're, getting attacked. They're getting bored. They yeah. are getting bored.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the like where they've probably. Uh, evolved uh, has they've never been either alkaline or acidic soil yeah okay. uh, it'd be more that they've evolved in acidic soil because most of the hyde's prefer acidic yeah. a, and a more acidic soil um and yeah, it'd be interesting to know if yeah, there is a reason I'm for that, or, always or, or yeah. wanting
1: to know the why. Why yeah. Does homework? It, M. Yeah, well, <laughs> hopefully it's out but, there. But
2: they're like lit. It's like, but it's the opposite to litmus paper. It's instead of turning pink in yeah, acidic soil, it turns blue in acidic. Yeah, yeah. Opposite. So it's the opposite. It's throwing well, oppo- everything oppo- off. Oppo- opposite to the, to those. Uh, so yeah, nightingales is beautiful. Um, well, the one I've got, yeah, it's it's that
0: looks quite violet. That mm. one.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really pretty colour. I'm mm. quite happy with the mix of uh, of lime in the soil there to Stunning. make it like, go that colour.
1: And and sorry to butt in, but how the flowers are just forming around the edge, do they die and then you just get a succession? or does it No, no,
2: so so the, the florets around the edge aren't fertile flowers. So when you oh. see a hydrangea flower, all the big florets on that flower are actually sterile. Right. And I think they're more there for show. Um, in species, they, it would be there to attract pollinators. Yeah, okay. Um, and they haven't opened yet on these ones because it's fairly early in on the season. That's but, why. But this species one I'll talk about in a minute yep. has got um, the yeah. smaller flowers in the centre are the fertile ones. Oh,
1: so I've never and noticed this before. I-
2: if you pull apart a mop-top hydrangea, mm-hmm. the fertile flowers are hidden underneath. You right. don't see them at the surface. So all the, all the big uh, florets you see on a, on a normal hydrangea, on a hybrid, Um, they're all sterile and you have to dig underneath those and you'll see these little tiny uh, uh, flowers with no petals on um, that are actually the fertile flowers.
1: Is that to like say wow look attracts things to me is it sort of like throwing out a big flag going here's a big flower yeah but all the special I stuff i think so to, yeah
2: because uh the lace cap feature is a big feature in hydrangeas and viburnums mm-hmm. uh, which i think are reasonably closely related mm-hmm. i don't think they're in the same family anymore but um i think they're still fairly closely related mm. uh but yeah lace cap flowers are a pretty big uh evolutionary thing mm. that must have happened at some point quite a long time ago, certainly before Hydes uh, and Viburnum split off from each other. Mm. Um, and the name hydrange is actually in reference to the, the seed pods that are formed after the fertile flowers have been uh, uh, fertilised mm. and the, the little seed capsules are um, amphora-shaped mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure the ancient greek word for for the amphoras is an angion, or something that holds water uh and hydrangeas water yeah, so it's a, it's a wa- water vessel i think it translates to and it's in reference to the little seed pods Wonderful. from the fertile flowers um yeah uh th- so there's another one i've brought in which is going closer to the species is another japanese species called uh hydrangea serrata this Particular one was taken back to England probably in the mid-1800s, late-1800s, and named greyswood, mm-hmm. which I think was is a garden or might have been a botanist. I can't remember. Um, so these are much smaller, daintier lace cap flowers. They come out white uh, with a pinkish blush to them. But as they get older, the, the little florets turn upside down and go scarlet red. Oh, wow. So in autumn time, these are bright scarlet red uh, little florets, and they dry dried out so you can pick them, and they'll last for a couple of years if you dry them well. These um,
1: remind me so much of that um the New South Wales Christmas bush, even the flower oh, sorry to petal them, yeah, and they, yeah. this the flowers are the same, like the smaller flowers, and the way that you're saying that they change color, yeah. Maybe we do have some sort of yeah. a cousin. <laughs> oh. So
0: these ones, Greg, I mean, you were saying they're, they're not easy to buy, but obviously Stephen would have a few maybe and then uh, other I don't places, White House Nursery maybe.
2: Yeah, what, uh, Peter'd peter would be worth a try. Yep. Um, if you ask for Aisha, someone will propagate it. I mean, it's still around. Yep. Um, uh, so up at Forest Glade, for instance, I propagate three or 400 hydrangeas a year, Mm -hmm. some of which we plant back into the garden, um, but a lot of them we sell at the front gate. Okay. And um, there'd be Aisha in there uh, because I often will pick – because I select before we prune the hydrangeas, I'll walk around and go, yeah, that's a nice one. I'll take some cuttings off that. Um, And I definitely propagated some graze wood this year. Yeah, that's gorgeous. So there'd be 40 or 50 of those uh that i've just potted up recently up there and what sort uh, of
0: environment i know that's how long is a piece of string but what sort of yeah
2: well the, the optimal sort of thing would be you know you think of the nongs in yeah. mount massive yeah that's pretty good uh environment so they the, the thing especially with the hybrid hydrangeas is that they lose a lot of water on hot days mm-hmm. so you could have one literally sitting in a bucket and it'll still wilt. And it's only after the heat of the day goes away that the amount of water going into the leaves from the root system, out, uh, you know, outstrips the yep. amount of water that they're losing through, the, mm. through their pores and whatever. Um, so they don't like hot winds. Mm. They don't like hot afternoon sun. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some leeway there too. So, uh, you know, growing your traditional mop top hydrangeas, you do need a lot of water. Shades best, especially in the afternoon, out of the hot winds. Um, but some of the American species are quite hardy mm-hmm. for that. Not yep. they still they still need water, um, and they still need a little bit of protection from hot winds and hot sun. But nowhere near as much as the uh, uh, you know the, the Asian species. So Quercifolia, for instance, which is probably the there's a couple of forms of that which are probably my favourite heides anyway. Mm. Um, they can handle a lot of sun. Um well after midday. Um you know, they flower for the uh, extended flower flowering time. Um and they also get beautiful autumn colour and um so so the one of the quercifolias I bought in s uh mm. Folia Snowflake and it's one of the yeah. double flowered quercifolias. Mm. This is uh about thirty centimeters long. This they're, they're more in a panicle rather yep. than the corum. Um and this is a small one. Like I've had them on this on these bushes, you know, fifty or sixty centimeters long. It's got the little doubled florets, um, these oak leaf shaped leaves. Yep. Uh, and in autumn, uh, this one in particular, snowflake, it doesn't drop its foliage in autumn. It, it hangs onto it, so it has this autumn color all through winter, and it only starts dropping its colored, still colored leaves in spring when the new leaves oh, start coming out.
0: Wonderful. Yeah.
2: Um, and you know, given a little bit of protection, the the flowers will burn easy in hot sun. That's mm-hmm. the only only part. Yeah, but they'll still be on the bush, and the bush still does well. Um, and yeah, the, so the, you know, this is flowering in November, December. It starts flowering. The same flowers still look okay in good conditions right up until March, April, May. Wonderful, yeah. Uh, the, when it starts to colour it with autumn, um, just a beautiful bush. It does. It's almost like it's doing something every uh, every part of the year. Um, it doesn't waste the space at all.
1: Wow.
2: Uh, yeah. And they don't need as much water either. Yeah. Although like, um, we were sort of discussing before things can survive without water. Mm. It doesn't mean you shouldn't give them water. Yeah. Like, yeah. cause a lot of these things do much better if, if they do get plenty of water, but, mm. um, yeah, they, they're much tougher. So if you can either ride it through the seasons and every now and again have a good season where yeah. they look flourish and do really well. Uh, or you can, you know, pour water on them every year. A little and, bit. And of, little bit. Yeah. little bit. Yeah.
1: Of, and a little bit of neglect does help. It Makes does. a stronger plant. Much,
2: much stronger. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think that that's also one of the better parts about gardening is, um, like I was talking about before with the mushrooms, being in the right place at the right time, sometimes it's nice just to let the garden go and see what it does. See what happens, mm. yeah. And some years you'll get something better than you'll expect, and then other years, you know, snails will eat everything <laughs> or some fungal disease will get on something and rot all the leaves off halfway yep. through summer or, you know, whatever it is. But that's part of – that's how nature works. What's happening in the And environment.
1: Environment. learning. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. An obs- observation. It's really important to learn those. Yep. You know what I really love about when the start of this is, like, imagining you as this 17-year-old asking I all these know. questions. and And, and I know, ranges. like, when I was younger and I would go to all these things, like how – open people would be to seeing someone so young wanting to learn and I think this is a bit of like yeah if anyone young in the industry like definitely ask questions because we're Mm. so welcoming to newcomers but yeah I just love thinking about you a little 17 year old (laughs) coming up and oh I'm I'm interested in hydrangeas I I I bet you they open their arms to you.
2: Yeah most of the time and and that's another the other side of that is if you are a bit more embedded in the industry or whatever you do be make sure you are open to those people because you can do a lot of damage you know without thinking about it Mm. um and yeah so so be open and uh, you know try not to be a gatekeeper yeah open the gate Mm.
1: (laughs) I, i say that a lot about like there is that in the industry it's like the most beautiful part of the industry is the Uh, giving of knowledge Mm. and and it's such a it's such a beautiful industry that can be shared and you want to share that knowledge to make things better yeah there are a lot of gatekeepers whether it's like you know they're holding it for their own sake of business or i don't know yeah but it it the beauty of it is share it share it and that you know at the end of the day we're all going to pass away and that knowledge mm. disappears with you.
2: And the more you can pass it on to, the, the more it spreads. Absolutely. And, yeah.
1: and we need to way. be a lot more giving in society. It's mm. becoming one of those things where people are just becoming a lot more sort of selfish or enclosed. Share yeah. it. It's so much more beautiful, so much more rewarding. And, and you get and so much more benefit. And
0: share it with your perspective, your own worldview. Yeah. And bring something That's new right. to it.
1: And listen to others if it is a little bit wrong.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes, just listen doesn't matter ego Mm. let it go yeah all right
0: this is the 3cr garden show uh just going to read through a few text messages that have been coming in this is a message for peter who rang up earlier to ask about ground covers someone has kindly texted in to say he could check out conservation collective nursery in somerville they have lots of local species grasses herbs and more so thank you Good. for that. Uh, what else we have? Someone messaged in to say hydrangea, mm, S-C-H-R-O-L-L popcorn candy, shroll popcorn candy.
2: Oh, I haven't shroll. heard of that. There's, there's. So at one point I was looking at what it would entail collecting hybrid hydrangeas as part of the Plants <laughs> Trust mm-hmm. or, or OPCAA, whatever it was at the time, and... Having these books, especially from places like France and England, there's probably five or six thousand hybrids and that really turns me off things. Uh, it's probably why I'm not a big fan of roses, mm-hmm. uh, although I'm coming around, but it's to the species ones. Yeah. I love species things, things that have evolved on their own. The odd uh, cross hybrid that throws up something amazing is really good. Um but, yeah, even the Aishas, I think probably in the 80s or 90s in Japan were really hybridised. And they're, some of them are really cool. But when you've got 15 different things that all look pretty much the same and they've all got these separate names on them, it's like, oh, I don't care anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's yep. lost me. Um, but, yeah, if it's nice, it doesn't really matter what it's called. Yeah. Like if, it, if it's something that really picks you and, um Yeah go for it but uh the original one was Hy- hydrangea aisha
0: mm-hmm. how do you spell that
2: i think it's a-y-e-s-h-a mm-hmm. um and yeah and as i say they've been hybridized over the years um and yeah you can get these ones that look like they've been ironed so they're It's they're like popcorn that's been ironed and they're bright green. Hmm. I think it was was called Midori, this particular one, or there was a Harlequin that had stripes on it. And there's some of the early ones are really cool because it's different. Yeah. And then you see the constant hybridizing of them, and then it just sort of gets all watered down. And you know, you you end up with 10 things that look exactly the same, but they've all got different names. So the local plant mark can sell one each year and it's a different one so i haven't got that one i have to get it <laughs> yeah. um but yeah if you love it grab it yeah there, there are some interesting new hybrids of the the big mop tops mm-hmm. that have got um uh like they're they're colored on the middle but they've got a white edge around them or they're doubled or you know there's lots of interesting stuff out there but yeah sure yeah, it is it's yeah, yeah.
0: Emmeline, a listener would like to know what is the best water test kit she could buy and where from for a pond or small dam.
1: Just go to your local aquarium Mm -hmm. and just get the API master test kit. API. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, Most aquariums will have it and it comes in a little get get the one with the whole box. Um, If she wants to go next level, get the additional G, H and K, H test kit which is your carbonate hardness and general hardness test kit. Mm -hmm. They don't come with the master test kit, but um, sometimes it's nice to know because then you're like, oh, yeah, my water's very soft or very hard. Like that kind of tells you what the rain source or where the water's coming from, probably mostly likely off your roof or water tank or, yeah.
2: You'd also get, after looking at it for years, you'll notice that certain insects and and
1: plants and things are really
2: good indicators too. You always look
1: at the indicator species. Yeah. And I think I said it last time on the on the show. Like um, certain bugs will tell you the quality of your water too. So if you are getting all those damselfly and dragonfly larvae, you've got a very good clean water source. You're a, you're in a good level. Mm-hmm. That's very very good. All your other species, like uh, um, like the water mites and all those sort of things, they they live in everything. Yeah. Water boatmen. But yeah, the next level. If you got Those nymph larvae, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm doing good. (laughs) And if you get caddisfly, then you're at top level. Top level, beautiful. (laughs) So when
0: you're designing ponds for home gardens, do you use filtration systems or you just let the plants do the work?
1: Well, it depends. Mm -hmm. So uh, some people don't want to do a pump. Um, They just want it to be a pond. So, yeah, that's just plants. Um, If you do have a plant, just a, a planted system, and, and you don't get a natural flush because you've got to remember everything has to work like what nature has organised. So you think about creeks and rivers and all those sort of things. They get a flush of water when it rains. So if your pond isn't getting that, you're sort of going against the natural system. Mm. Of course, you've got wetlands, but they're still getting water coming in. But the plants are doing all the nutrient filtration. But... Um, Yes, yeah, sometimes if you've got ponds and you're just using plants, then you, you should do a little bit of a clean out maybe once every two or three years, just because if you're under eucalypse or anything, your leaf litter do build up. You get a whole lot of sludge. It is nicer to give it a little bit of a clean. Um, but yeah, uh, a lot of people do, obviously, if they're going to build a pond in their garden, they want to hear the sounds of water. So... We call this like the combination of um, natural and mechanical filtration. Mm -hmm. So um, you'll have a, a pond pump and that's circulating water. And the circulation of water is really important because you're putting oxygen in the water as well. That's sort of simulating a river system. You think about rivers are very healthy systems. Water circulation improves oxygen and oxygen improves the clarity of water. And so if you think about your pond, you've sort of got this like a mixture of a creek system mixed with a river system and, and, and that in itself it improve, improves your water. So every design can be different and some people, like I've had a couple of people who are really about just wanting something without pumps, no, nothing, and it's just a pond and that works very, very well. But if it is in a certain environment, you have to give it a little bit of a clean out, just a little bit.
0: What are some of the mistakes that people make when they're creating ponds <clears throat> or when they, when they have them?
1: Yeah. Um, sometimes it's the, okay, so big mistakes is certain rocks. Never put white rocks, white pebbles, because that can drastically make your water alkaline.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Sometimes you're like, what's going on? It's like, oh, you've put white pebbles in. It's full of calcium.
3: Mm.
1: Big one. Concrete also, as you know, leeches, a lot of um, calciums and all other materials, so that's a big one. Um, certain plants that you put in can be sometimes an issue. Mm-hmm. So every system responds differently to the environment. So like before when I said about the dichondra, dichondra can go crazy <laughs> and it can take over the whole thing depending on the environment. Yep. So, and I mean, that's what you have to learn as things goes on. Um location is really important so if it's a really shaded environment you really have to set up the environment to work in there so um, ponds do respond better with light sources Uh, that's just for plant health but in very closed environments where it's very shaded you tend to get a lot more diseases and things happening so you've got to be very careful about what sort of plants you're using in those areas um,
0: so in terms of light, what would you go for? How much sunlight and shade?
1: I like probably if I could be like eighty percent sunlight, twenty percent shade, mm-hmm. something like that. Yep. That's the perfect, but I mean, a lot of you get more life out of a fully exposed area, but obviously then you've got more evaporation so it also depends on what sort of how much water is going into these systems, what are the plants there that are going to prevent the evaporation the de- rate. depth
2: of the water too a depth little bit.
1: is very yeah. important. So that's why when I design it's shallow, medium, deep. Yep. So you really need a deep level because that will provide um, a deeper, cooler source of water. And that's really, really important for preventing um, uh like the decomposition of or decomposing matter from accelerating too fast. Obviously when it's warmer, Hmm. things decompose quicker. So if you've got a cooler, imagine it's like a fridge, so it's providing oxygen, it's keeping it cool. And then you've got the shallow areas that are regulating those temperatures, but you've got the plants in there and they're in there to absorb all the nutrients. And it's sort of like this little symbiotic relationship that works. How deep is deep? Uh, I... I would say like deep is a meter, mm-hmm. 800 mil to a meter. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, in a, in a backyard sort of setting, if we're dueling with dams like I do, I go two meters, two point five. Mm-hmm. So and, and yep. so a
2: meter deep, but how like how
1: wide? How wide oh, yeah. would
2: be a minimum too?
1: Yeah, probably. I'd probably would like it to be at least minimum one point two to one point five, maybe depending yeah. where you are. Um, that's why, like, you know, you make that really lovely organic shape to sort of work in yeah, that, yep. that system so if you can kind of visualise that. That's sort of how it works. But, yeah, it's very important to have the shallow medium and deep because mm. that's – just got to imagine, like, this little
2: – It's like a, a stomach almost, isn't
1: it? It's like it, a – You know, a, a every, but it is because <laughs> yeah. even, like – I say, say this because I do a little bit of like talks and things, but it is like a stomach because mm. bacteria is a really big component with these systems mm. as well. So if you imagine like the shallow and the medium and the deep and the different temperatures that regulates different types of bacterial exchange, mm. that's the same in our stomach. Yeah. We need a really good, healthy bacteria to maintain our stomach. If something falls out, you feel unwell or something happens. The same thing as ponds. Mm. It's the same thing even in our land environments as well. It's very, on that micro scale, things are happening. Mm. But, yeah, it's that, that was one of the big, so when I was a little kid, just like you, I was like into aquariums. Yeah, yeah. And my big thing was I had this tank that was given to me and, you know, Dad gave me it and it was a four-foot tank. It was a big one. I was only eight, like thrown right in the deep end. But, you know, within two weeks that water was white and cloudy. All my my fish are dead. Oh, my God. And, you know, I went into the creek and I, I, you know, I loved the creek. I used to grab all the rocks through there and all the plants and then all of a sudden my tank was flourishing. Mm. But I didn't realise at that age until very much later is that when I was bringing those... Rocks and the plants and all the little bugs on there. I was bringing in the bacteria. Mm. Yeah. I was bringing in those microorganisms that helped that tank. Now that tank worked for like six weeks. You know, it worked a lot longer, but it still crashed. Yeah. Um, but you you were seeing like that thing. It's kind of like a yogurt. You know, you have yogurt, or you know, even when you eat meats and things like that, it decomposes in your stomach, but it creates good bacteria. Yeah. Same thing. Mm. So yeah, it's interesting. Good, I want to come back to that oh, because okay.
0: it's absolutely fascinating. But for now, let's go to Kim. Good morning, Kim. Yeah, good morning.
5: Um, I've got a bit of a, a question that's stumped me and I'm about to plant, uh, maybe not now because it's going be hot next week, but i what about to plant and I've got to put the male upwind of the female. But being in Melbourne, sometimes I get northerlies and sometimes I'm I get southerlies and I've got absolutely no idea about how do you find what's upwind and what's downwind.
0: Well, um, I mean, it does sort of vary <coughs> depending on the yeah. seasons. So, yeah. I mean...
5: So we... I know in, um, in... They've lost them in October, and that's when I've got 30% northerlies and 20% southerlies, because I've got the young neighbour, who's the really hardcore gardener, to look that up for me. <laughs> and that's um, taken at an average from 1970s um, in the afternoon, but it still of really doesn't help me because I don't sort of really know um, if sometimes it's southerly and sometimes it's northerly. What's the best thing Do I, I, I would and hope for
2: the best. I would say the prevailing wind for most of Victoria would be westerly or southwesterly. Yeah, I, it was I, I always think uh, of the weather moving in from the west mm. or the southwest. Um, if we're, the wind's blowing from the northeast, it means we're going to get dumped with rain yep. the, yep. where I'm at home anyway. Um, and if it's from the southeast, there's something weird happening too. And southerlies and southwesterlies are the colder sort of winter weather, and northwesterlies and westerlies are more summer. The hotter I thought that summer was weather. The summer, yeah. That was um, so yeah, if 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 the thing's flowering in October, I would probably plant the male on the southwestern side of the female. Yeah. Uh, and that way you're probably more likely to get uh, more regular winds blowing the pollen at that time of the year onto the other plant. Yeah.
5: Oh, great. Because I didn't even think of having wesleys and all of that. So that's cool,
1: awesome. I've always known it as the wesleys too. Yeah. That, well, that's in Gippsland. I get a little bit boxed because I've moved up to Melbourne and I'm like, I don't even know my directions I feel mm. very lost in the city but on the farm it's yeah. all Wesley
2: yeah so if someone yeah. says oh what's what's it going, what's the weather going to be today I always look to the west
0: <clears> yeah <laughs> it's yeah. true
2: um we do but, tend but to you get, get our
0: weather from Adelaide and yeah
2: probably. yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and it's got to do with the like weather stream that goes around the entire southern hemisphere of the globe as well uh from Antarctica you mm-hmm. know there's the vortex I think goes from west to east mm. and we're a bit higher up of course but the wind's still probably getting pushed along in the same direction.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but you have microclimates too, so you might be, you know, if you if you're somewhere where there's a, a large building on the western side of you, that might form currents, you know, micro currents in your little habitat that you have, where the wind might come from more from the south or more from the north than mm. it would otherwise. So I'd take into consideration mountains and trees and yeah, uh, and buildings too. Okay. Yeah, but I'm but. On a- it,
5: and the, cor- the westerly corner is the paling fence to the road and then the house on the other side. So, so it's fairly open. Yeah. It's fairly open. If I put it right at the fence line, obviously it wouldn't be open because that's, um, you know, be blocked by the fence. But I can put it somewhere where it would get um, a westerly and it's actually just put, sort of where I was going to put them anyway, but I didn't even think about that because I was too busy thinking about, you know, the, the Melbourne hot northerlies is particularly like a... I
2: don't know what in the face in the summer. So yeah. No, I'd, I'd plant it, yeah, yeah sort of west-southwesterly of the okay. male, of the female, sorry, yeah. So i put
5: the males to the west of the females. Yeah, so yep. the
2: pollen's blowing into the, yeah.
5: Awesome, yep. that's so cool. Thank you so much for
0: that. You're welcome.
5: Thanks. No worries. Happy gardening. You too. Thanks, Bye. Kim.
0: Bye-bye. 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 Sorry, Kim, cut you off. Um, and somebody is asking about garlic, Um, hi, gardening gurus. How do I know when my garlic is ready to dig up and what's the deal with hanging it? That is Kerry in Port Melbourne. So, um, should be ready. Sort of late spring, summer. I just dug the um,
2: garlic for the first time ever up this year. Um, my partner and I (laughs) dug, and we didn't do so well, so... (laughs) <laughs>
6: probably not <laughs> the best <laughs> first.
0: Well, yeah, when when the leaves have yellowed and and died down, yeah. um which is should be around about mm. now I depending on when now. you planted it. Um and yeah, dig it up, um shake the soil from it, leave it in the sun for a couple of days and then hang it yeah. somewhere dry and
1: shady. Dry and shady, you know, like an old shed or something yeah. on a bit of a rack.
2: Even the veranda.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. hold them in bunches mm. on the veranda on the southern side. Yeah. And how long do you hang it for? I haven't, I haven't harvested. I know my um, brother-in-law does all his garlic, and we get yeah, like tons of it.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you can
1: keep it for months. Yeah, I thought it was longer. It was, yeah, it was like six months or something. Well, it's while
2: it's dormant, I guess you've got mm. uh, its dormant period. Stormant, I yeah, love yeah, that.
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. for it sprouts yeah. again.
0: Yeah, but and make sure you save some for
1: your for your next planting. Yeah. But yeah, should should be now and my goodness, it's so much better than the stuff you buy. Mm. Like the flavour, oh, doesn't you can't beat it. Mm-hmm. Do you grow veg? Oh no, because no? I'm in a little rental in Thornbury. I've okay. no room, but I will when we move to Hoddles. So I got a whole area, and it actually I was looking into the history of our property, and the it used to be a gold mine, the biggest gold mine in the in the Yarra Valley. Until it hit a a wall, and these poor three men um, got uh, trapped. It went for kilometers this mine. Yeah. hit the wall, uh, water burst through. and now we've got a complete a continuous flowing uh, amount of water, continuous, and it and it flows into Black Leather Creek, which is there, full of galaxy species of fish, which is wonderful. But the second owner, uh, was a Chinese man and he used the whole area as a big uh, garden to pr- um, grow vegetables for the community.
0: Oh, lovely. Mm-hmm. And so
1: it's already tiered, ready for it. Oh, yeah. So Fantastic. I'm going to be growing, gar- I'll be growing a lot of vegetables. <laughs> and when are moving time? there? I know this is the next question. Year. Everything I'm like, yeah, 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 it will be next year. I think at the end of next year mm-hmm. we um, ended up having to do a, a lot more. Obviously, everyone has this same problem. I think when they buy a place, and we ended up doing a lot more, and it's taken a lot longer, mm. and that's fine. Um, but yeah, then I'll transition and move the business up near Hillsville. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. But I'm very excited to be back on. In quiet, in the wild. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, you know, the, Melbourne's great. You know, it's got a great culture and diversity, and and it's so vibrant and great food, and. But I'm, I'm a country girl. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've had it. I've had the mm. traffic. I've had. I've just had it. I need to be free, and I don't. I never had it, and yeah. I don't want it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> I just stay in the country. Yeah.
1: No, it's, but it, I think it was a very good experience yeah. because it really opened my mind. Because I, I, I grew up on a massive farm, mm. you know, and we didn't really, I have a, we had one neighbor for like 12 kilometers. Um, that's my best friend, Sammy. She's like a sister to me. But, you know, I lived all life on the farm and, you know, Terralgan and Gippsland's quite closed. Mm. And the first thing I thought, I'm out. I yeah. need, I've got, there's a world, I know there's a world out there. And Melbourne was such a, eye-opening experience because um people from Gislam would always be like city slickers I hate the city slickers (laughs) you know Uh, and this is really a real thing you know but I went there and I found all those negative things Mm. that I heard I found beautiful people Mm. and a a completely different world and this is where before I was saying like it's really important to talk to each other about things because we all become very closed and there's like a there's a bit of a a barrier up between like the country people and city people and there's so much to learn from each other city people have a very close perspective on certain things as well as country people and this is where you know I myself grew so much because I was willing to learn and willing to listen and now it's given me a beautiful perspective of things and I go home and you know it's 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 wonderful so yeah and how did you
0: get to um move into landscape architecture
1: i so when i finished school i needed to save up some money i was very poor so i worked at an aquarium for a year i, was, I ended up being like 18 year old manager thought i was so cool <laughs> <laughs> didn't know anything <laughs> anyway then i went and i really wanted to work for animals so i actually went into latrobe i went to La Trobe university and studied biosciences and zoology um, but, you know, dissecting animals and all these sort of things and learning about that, and I was all right, but I wasn't particularly good at physics. I would love to have been a vet. But I wish I did that. But anyway, um, I wanted to be able to change environments to support animals and make ecosystems for animals, and I thought, yeah, I like want to change zoos as well. I hate zoos. I think they're too – some of them are just – Horribly designed. <laughs> but they're a lot better now. Like I think there's a big transformation there. So I was very artistic, and I was looking at these courses, and this thing come up as landscape architecture. And you know, landscape architecture is still a very broad. Like some people, you ask them what is a landscape architect, and there's people like oh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, some it's still an area that can be very diverse into where you want to go with that profession. But yeah, I wanted to go into landscape architecture because. Um, you know, I wanted to apply my artistic skills with my fascination for environments and ecology and merge that too. And when I was reading that course, I thought, this is fantastic. Mm. What a wonderful course. When I got into it, I think I was a little bit like, yeah, it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. But – um it, it's a great it is a great career if if you are like looking for that diversity of where where you want to head you know and then I I was like i really want to be specific into what I want to um, uh, work into so I did my master's and I did my master's on um, cohabitation of animal and human species in urban environments or just environments so creating gardens and spaces that are just not for people but are for our environments for animals mm. and plants and you know, I, it was weird because I was the first at the time to have ever done it. All the teachers were like, oh, this is so new. And I thought, but this is so new. No-. And now, look, everyone's doing it.
3: Mm. Mm.
1: Now it's this big thing. You know, when I ended up working for, uh, you know, a couple, a few people um, and I found it really frustrating because it was like I'd sort of like say all these things and they sort of just didn't take it take it seriously or – Kind of did, but I was just like, oh, I just need to be able to show myself what I want to do and I want to show the ponds and, and those, you know, water environments and that's why I started my own business because well, I was just – I was sick of people saying that they were doing those things that weren't and at the end of the day they're just chasing was just a s- business yeah. model. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's just doing it for a yeah. business. You know what? That's fine. Yeah. But I'm passionate about it. So, mm. yeah, and I love it. Yeah, I
0: think landscape architecture is not renowned for uh, teaching students about plants. No. So yeah. I think you would have been a bit of the exception to the rule back well, then. Well, to, to be n- fair, though, the
2: highest really. paid landscape designers probably don't know much about no, the landscape No, they
1: don't. They don't. But I, I it, my so plant knowledge was very poor. Very, very, very poor. I've learnt it... Um, very much after that, all by myself. Um, I would like. I think I've said on this radio before. If you are doing the course and you're fascinated in plants, do it. Do it. Do go. Something do extra. something extra. Yep. You have to. You mm. really have to. Unless you're, you know, you're like yourself, Greg, seventeen, and, and investigating yourself, and you already have a great knowledge that you've learnt yourself. You really need to. But, but you
2: know. the, the I think the big thing there's interest, having interest in something. It doesn't matter what it is. It is passion. It doesn't matter and whether it's geology or or. Yep um astronomy or whatever it's just have an interest and yes. follow it and feed that interest because yes. all those pieces eventually join up into a bigger picture mm. they and absolutely that's what do you, yeah that's that's the the aim or the goal the i reckon goal is, is, yeah. is yeah or yeah. yeah or at least to aim for it anyway you don't want to get there but um uh yeah just having an interest in stuff and why do things work or why yeah. are things like that and yeah, yeah. always
1: questioning yeah. And get off Instagram and Facebook and actually go out and do it. Don't try and. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Let's go to uh, Liam and Hobart. Good morning, Liam.
6: Good morning. Um, I'm wondering if anyone can tell me if there is anything that eats uh, the leaves of Himalayan birches. Any specific caterpillar or something.
0: So you obviously have a bit of a problem going
6: on? Yeah. There's. Some, something's munching on, on the leaves of some recently planted birches and I just can't
2: see anything on them. Is, is there a pattern to what, which leaves are being eaten? Are there, are there leaves up the top of the tree or down the bottom of the up tree? The top? Yeah, yeah. I think it might be a ringtail possum.
6: <laughs> ah, right. It, it,
2: so wow. the, the, if you look carefully where the damage is on the tree, mm. if it's a ringtail, you'll get some leaves that are like, it looks like they've been ripped off but only half a leaf. And the the ringtails sit up in the top of the tree and they'll put their little hands around the uh, stems and then just pull their hands up and rip off all the leaves into their hands. Um, I don't even know if they eat them or if they pick through the leaves for insects. I'm Mm. I'm not sure why they do it, but uh, they do it to an oak tree I have at home and maples. And I've seen them do it to dogwoods and uh, and I'm pretty sure dogwoods are fairly toxic. So I don't think they'd be eating the leaves on those. Um, but they'll yeah. they'll sit up in trees and strip leaves off, and I don't know what they do with them. But they that's what they do.
0: Line their nests, maybe.
2: So I reckon it might be a ringtail possum.
6: Well, there you go. Thank you very much. So, so might, maybe might. go out
2: there at night time and and see if you've got a ringtail out and about, yeah. and if they spend a lot of time in that tree. Yeah. Yep. No, I'll
6: I'll, I'll do that. Might um, need to do some one banding. Other quick, one other quick question, if if you don't mind, um, Greg, I'm wondering if you could. Um, maybe explain the differences between the different hydrangea quirkifolia um, varieties, but the labelling here doesn't seem to be very good at the nurseries.
2: Yeah, as a, there's, there's a gold leaf form. Um, I can't okay. remember any of the names of the hybridised, pretty much anything I really.
6: There's, <laughs> I, think there's a, I think there's Alice. And snowflake are the ones we get here, and then there just seems to be
2: the species one too. Yeah, so there, there is a gold leaf form in Australia. I, I know uh, my friend Finn at Autumn Joy Nursery had that recently. Uh, I'm sure other right. nurseries have it too. So there's a gold leaf form. Uh, there's cool. a dwarf form. There's uh, the snowflake, which is a big double one. There's uh, a, I think there's a, a, a number of the quercifolia hybrids now, um, yeah. and they're really well-suited more well suited to our gardens here than some of the old hybrid ones. Um, yeah, okay. Snowflake is probably one of my favourite hydrangeas though. Um, yeah. And it's got, yeah, just because the, the flowers are so much bigger and uh, last for ages and it seems to hold onto their leaves with that beautiful deep sort of autumn colours as well. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, the, the the naming ones, I guess just go off, uh, do some Google homework and check a few yeah. websites and see if the names are pretty much right. But the best way is just to go into a nursery. And if you like the plant, grab it. Yeah.
6: Yep. Yeah. Great. All right. Thank you very much. All. Oh, great show. Good on Thank you. Good on Thank you, Thank you Liam. Thanks.
0: Bye for now. See ya. Bye-bye. All right. And um, Vicky and Peter from Notting Hill. Hi, guys. They've written in to say the Royal Botanic Gardens have a lot of the species and old hybrid hydrangeas. It could be worth asking the Friends um, of the Bot Gardens if they're available or if they can propagate some. We were in the gardens on Friday and they were looking great, particularly the group of them growing nearish to the Rose Pavilion. And uh, Oh, the Friends Nursery closes for the year this Friday. And they were also saying, on another note, we noticed that the third and last of the rainbow gums is no longer there. Um... In one of Stephen and Matthew's YouTube videos, they spoke to Tim Entwistle and it was his favourite tree in the entire garden. So, I oh, wonder what's Most, happened to them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, All right, guys, well, we are going to finish up. So I'd like to thank our producer, Bern Lamberg, for coming in early and being amazing. Thanks to Chloe for doing our socials recently. Thanks to Emmeline Bowman and Greg Balderson for coming in and sharing your beautiful knowledge. Very, very much appreciate that. And thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning into 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Ab Bishop and we will be back again next week. Bye-bye for now.
1: Bye.